The capsule moved under the thrust generated by gentle taps on its maneuvering thrusters, inching toward its target. A steady stream of information from the ground provided the two astronauts on board with the raw materials they needed to conduct their calculations. The capsule guided by the math they worked out in real time. The capsule edged closer to its target. In their minds, they could picture the capsule approaching the spacecraft ahead. But looking out of the windows in its nose, there was no target to be seen at all. Just empty space and the familiar crescent of the Earth looming down below. Welcome to episode 26 of Frontier of Infinity, Eight Days or Bust. Last time, we covered the first American spacewalk conducted during the flight of Gemini 4. Jim McDivitt and Ed White piloted a Gemini capsule into orbit, were unable to rendezvous with the spent second stage of their rocket, but then pulled off a nearly flawless spacewalk as Ed White became the first American to leave his spacecraft while in orbit. The mission was not a complete success, but it was a great achievement nonetheless, and it helped to lessen the Soviets' lead in the space race. In this episode, we're covering the next flight in the Gemini sequence, Gemini 5. Gemini 4 had revealed some severe weaknesses in NASA's capabilities to carry out complex operations in orbit. For all of the know-how and intellect that was concentrated in America's space program, there were still gaps that needed to be filled in, as evidenced by the inability of Gemini 4 to catch up to its own rocket's second stage. The ability to carry out an orbital rendezvous that is, to have two spacecraft meet in orbit, was a critical part of the upcoming moon plan, and thus it was a skill that NASA needed to master before the dawn of Project Apollo. The failure of Gemini 4 to carry out just such a maneuver was concerning, not only in that the astronauts were unable to pull off the piloting in orbit, but that nearly everyone on the ground had also failed to grasp what was required to do it. These sorts of maneuvers, as well as longer mission durations, would become the focus moving forward, since Ed White had proven America's ability to perform EVA just like the Soviets. Gemini 5 was next on the docket, whose main mission objective would be to carry out a flight lasting over a week. Eight days in all. This would be the longest American spaceflight yet undertaken, and would be a test of endurance both for the Gemini capsule as well as for the astronauts who would fly it. This mission would also give NASA a second chance to make a successful rendezvous. Gemini 5 was to be equipped with a nifty little machine called a Radar Evaluation Pod, REP or REP. 
Those of you who've been listening for a while might remember that the Gemini suite of vehicles had come with a rendezvous target in the form of an unmanned Agena stage, which would be outfitted with docking equipment. However, before NASA dared to try docking a Gemini to an Agena, they wanted to be able to test out the program's guidance and rendezvous equipment. This led to the creation of the REP. It was considerably smaller than the Agena, small enough that it could be mounted to the Gemini itself, but it was designed to track on radar in the same manner as the Agena. The astronauts in the capsule could locate and rendezvous with the much smaller vehicle, acquainting themselves with the process, but they wouldn't be able to dock. That was okay. Docking would come later. The idea was that the Gemini would carry the rep into orbit and then launch it with some explosive bolts. The capsule would then deliberately maneuver away from it so that the astronauts could practice locating and catching it. Hopefully, they would be able to do so more effectively than Gemini 4 had managed. The crew of the mission was announced on the 8th of February, 1965, with Mercury 7 veteran Gordon Cooper named commander and Charles Pete Conrad as pilot. They would be backed up by Neil Armstrong and Elliot C. Now, some of you may have noticed that I made a sizable mistake in the last episode. I put in the biography for Frank Borman, who was part of Gemini 4's backup crew, instead of Jim McDivitt, who actually flew the mission. So to rectify that mistake, I'm going to give Jim McDivitt his due now, and then move on to the two astronauts who flew Gemini 5. Jim McDivitt was born in Chicago in 1929 and received a Bachelor of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering from the University of Michigan 30 years later. Before he graduated college, though, he joined the Air Force as an aviation cadet in 1951, rising to the rank of second lieutenant and achieving his pilot's wings the next year. During the Korean War, he completed 145 combat missions as part of the 35th Bombardment Squadron before returning to the U.S., where he was transferred to the 19th Fighter Interceptor Squadron and served as both a pilot as well as an assistant operations officer. Come 1954, McDivitt attended advanced flying school and would eventually come to fill the role of flight commander for the 332nd Fighter Interceptor Squadron. June of 1959 marked the start of McDivitt's foray into test piloting. He traveled to Edwards Air Force Base and completed the necessary training before continuing on as a test pilot until he was selected to join the astronaut corps. Just so we're clear, that was Jim McDivitt who flew on Gemini 4, the mission we covered last time. Now we're moving on to the two astronauts who flew on Gemini 5. You all should be acquainted with Gordon Cooper already. We've discussed him extensively over the course of the show, but if you're interested, I would suggest revisiting our episode entitled The Urge to Pioneer for more information about what initially drove him to become an astronaut. Regardless, Gordon Cooper flew solo on Mercury Atlas 9, also known as Faith 7, which was the final flight of Project Mercury, and saw him become the first American to spend more than a day in space. 
In his memoir, Failure is Not an Option, flight director Gene Krantz describes Cooper as, quote, the friendliest of the original astronauts, and one who had shown great poise on Mercury 9 when his electrical systems went to hell, end quote. Now, Cooper was ready to embark on an even more ambitious mission. Cooper's pilot while in space would be Charles Pete Conrad. A son of Philadelphia, he had been set on a path towards space at the age of five, when he fell in love with aviation upon his first ever ride in an aircraft. He was already flying planes on his own by the time he was 16, and he had a degree in aeronautical engineering from Princeton by 1953. Conrad then joined the Navy, where he worked as both a flight instructor and a performance engineer attached to the test pilot school in Patuxent River, Maryland. He also served aboard the aircraft carrier USS Ranger for a time. In 1962, Conrad was selected by NASA to serve as an astronaut. Unlike Cooper, this would be Conrad's first spaceflight. The first crewed flight of the Gemini program, Gemini 3, nicknamed Molly Brown, had seen NASA ban the use of further nicknames for flights of the project. But Conrad and Cooper weren't about to let a stuffy decision from on high trample their fun. They selected a covered wagon to be the symbol for their mission, based on a wooden carving Conrad's father-in-law had, and landed on a mission motto of eight days or bust. NASA, specifically its director, James Webb, was not pleased with this. He was terrified that the motto would spell doom for the mission in the press if anything went wrong. What would the papers print if the mission didn't last eight days? All sorts of florid headlines leapt to mind. He did, however, let them keep the Prairie Schooner mission emblem. Even though the motto had been officially nixed, it did become quite popular among the NASA workforce. Try as the higher-ups might, they just couldn't squelch the fun out of space travel. The mission did not fly until August 21, 1965, but the launch was a success. It was a slightly rough ride into orbit, with some pogo vibrations manifesting for a few seconds, but the capsule reached orbit in fine shape and was let go from the rocket on an orbital path with an apogee of 217 miles, or about 349 kilometers. Roughly two hours and 13 minutes into the flight, Cooper and Conrad were ready to get underway with the rendezvous experiment. They swung the capsule around 90 degrees and launched the rep, which flung away from the capsule without issue. Activating the radar suite, the astronauts were pleased to find that they immediately received a signal from the pod. It was drifting slowly away from the capsule. So far, so good. But that good didn't last. Gemini 5 was also the first mission to carry fuel cells on board. These were used for generating electrical power and would be better than the batteries that had been used on previous flights but they had proven to be temperamental machines on the ground, making Commander Cooper somewhat nervous about their operation. A fuel cell makes use of a chemical reaction to generate electrical current. In the case of the Gemini 5 cells, they used liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen reacting across a thin polymer sheet called a proton exchange membrane. 
The results of this reaction were water, heat, and electrical current. But Cooper was wary of overtaxing the cells and causing them to fail. As Gemini 5 began the rendezvous experiment, the oxygen pressure within the fuel cells dropped very low. If the pressure fell too low, then the cells would cease to generate power. Despite the astronauts' efforts to keep the draw on the cells low, the pressure continued to drop until it crossed the threshold where they should have failed. But miraculously, they continued to generate. By this point, the capsule was out of range with any of the ground stations, leaving Cooper and Conrad to their own devices. Cooper made a decision and began to shut down the spacecraft's electrical systems in order to spare the fuel cells. But without a reliable supply of electrical power, there could be no rendezvous with the pod, and quite possibly, no mission at all. Gemini 5 might have to return home just a couple of hours after reaching space. What a bust that would be. However, the Gemini capsule was also equipped with backup batteries that could power it for a few hours, hopefully long enough to find a tenable re-entry corridor which would bring them down safely somewhere in the event that the cells failed, but there was no guarantee of that. On the ground, the controllers and appropriate contractors started scrambling to discern how long the Gemini capsule could remain operational while the pressure in the cells continued to drop. It finally leveled out at an absurdly low 49 newtons per square centimeter, or about 71 pounds per square inch. By all rights, they should have failed, but they continued to operate regardless. Chris Kraft, who was the flight director on duty at that time, reported up to Cooper. Gordo, I think the oxygen is bottomed out. We've got 13 hours on the batteries. I think we should go for it. To which Cooper replied, I was hoping you'd say that. Let's give it a go. They had some breathing room. Those 13 hours would give them ample time to create a re-entry plan in case of failure, and the mission was authorized to continue for at least a full day. They would then reevaluate the situation and make another decision. Cooper began to cautiously reactivate some of the capsule systems, the fuel cells continuing to hold strong. And as their first day in space aged on, both Cooper and Conrad tried to get some sleep. At first, they tried sleeping in shifts like McDivitt and White had done on Gemini 4, but they ran into the same problems those two had. It was too noisy in the capsule to sleep with the other astronaut communicating with the ground and carrying out operations. So they abandoned the regulations and opted instead to do everything at the same time, which proved to be a much better system. The fuel cells continued to function, and the mission was allowed to endure longer, eventually stretching out to three days. It was on day three that they attempted to salvage some scrap of worth from the failed rendezvous experiment. On the ground, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, there's a familiar name, or Dr. Rendezvous as he was known on the ground thanks to his doctoral dissertation on orbital rendezvous, worked out a clever way that they could still practice the rendezvous maneuver. The astronauts in space were given a fictional target to follow, carrying out the necessary calculations and maneuvers as though they were following an actual Agena target. 
All the while, Mission Control beamed data up to the capsule, which simulated the position and behavior of the fantasy Agena. Cooper and Conrad worked together to catch up to the fictitious vehicle and succeeded in the make-believe rendezvous. It wasn't the same as actually catching a real spacecraft, but it was a good sign nonetheless. It was at least better than Gemini 4 had managed to do in the same domain. Throughout Day 4, the crew of Gemini 5 made a number of interesting ground observations, including a rocket sled test at Holloman Air Force Base, the launch of a Minuteman missile, and the spotting of their recovery fleet plying the ocean down below. Then things took a turn on Day 5, which saw one of the capsule's maneuvering thrusters fail, compromising in part the attitude control system. With both the fuel cell issues and the dead thruster, there was little choice but to allow Gemini 5 to drift for the rest of the mission, only making attitude adjustments as were strictly necessary. This meant that the astronauts had almost nothing to do for the remaining duration of the flight, prompting Cooper to bemoan the lack of onboard reading material. I personally have a very difficult time relating to this problem. I can't imagine ever being bored in space. Of course, that's easy for my terrestrially locked mind to say, but I just can't wrap my head around the idea that the view of the Earth from space could ever lose its charm. Luckily for the astronauts, though, they did get some music piped up to them from the ground, namely jazz by Al Hurt for their wake-up call, which eventually evolved into a mission control tradition. But something else important also unfolded that day. Since the launch of the capsule, a countdown clock had been running steadily in mission control, initially ratcheted up to meet the contemporary crewed flight duration record, which was then held by the Soviet Union. But once that clock ticked down to zero, a cheer went up as the Americans had robbed the Russians of their record. Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad were flying the longest crewed mission in history up to that point. Someone in mission control sent word up to Cooper and Conrad that they ought to make a victory roll to celebrate, but Cooper simply replied that they didn't have the fuel for such a maneuver. The rest of the mission stretched out without incident, and the hour of re-entry drew near. On the ground, Hurricane Betsy was encroaching on the landing zone, so the call was made that the capsule would come down a little earlier than initially planned. This new plan would see them come down well clear of the hurricane, and it would allow the USS Lake Champlain ample time to steam to the new landing zone before they arrived. 190 hours, 27 minutes, and 43 seconds after liftoff, the first retro rocket fired, the others following close behind, and the capsule began its return journey to the surface. On the way, the instrument panel declared that the capsule was coming in at too high an angle. Cooper adjusted the capsule's angle from 53 degrees to 90 so as to produce more drag and write their course, massively increasing the G-forces acting on the astronauts. They were pinned in their seats, but the drogue chute deployed at Cooper's command and the capsule made a soft landing in the ocean. They had splashed down 81 miles, or about 130 kilometers, off target. It wasn't quite eight full days, but it wasn't a total bust, either. 
Yes, the rendezvous had failed for a second time. Yes, there had been problems with the fuel cells and the maneuvering system. But the mission had lasted for nearly the full duration. In fact, it had set a new endurance record and proven that an eight-day moon mission was a possibility. The so-called Phantom Rendezvous had worked as well, even though the actual rendezvous had failed. An encouraging sign. The astronauts and ground control had also finally worked out a sensible routine for sleeping in space that could be applied to future missions. What was more, it revealed additional information about the human body in space. Flight surgeon Charles Berry was concerned that the astronauts would suffer calcium loss and low blood plasma levels after spending so much time in microgravity without much in the way of exercise. These fears had been bolstered by a series of reports released by the Soviet Union indicating similar effects in their cosmonauts. There were physical ramifications to be noted in both Cooper and Conrad upon their return, but after just a couple of days roaming the Earth's surface again, they were just about back to the way they'd been before launch. Gemini 5 was a disappointment in some ways, but it was also a success in many others. It constituted a necessary step forward that would pave the way for the next goal the Americans had in mind. Two full weeks in space. Next time, though, we're going to take a detour from Project Gemini to explore some of the unmanned missions that have unfolded since the end of Projects Mercury and Vostok. Like I said in the prelude, we won't be covering every mission, but there are some that deserve mention. I hope to see you all there. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Thank you.